Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Um, how is everyone doing today? Our Bible reading today will be from Ezekiel 2, 1, to then chapter 3, from 1 to 6. At the end, I would say this is the word of the Lord. Please help me respond by saying, speak to God. He said to me, son of man, Stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been, been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid. Though barriers and tongues are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, in it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and, of, and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, Eat this scroll I am giving to you, I'm giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscured speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel, not to many people of obscured speech and strange languages whose words you cannot understand. But surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see us. Um, on a day that it threatened to rain, and maybe it's raining, well, maybe, I don't know where it came from, so actually it may have been raining 
where you are. But um, we are happy that you've been able to brave it to come here or to log on, to log on. Uh, those who are logging on from home, you are welcome. Um, before I go, and I do, I do want to um, recognize uh, someone in the house uh, that's very special to me. You know, when you are growing up, um, you have uncles and aunts. And there are certain uncles and aunts, when they are coming to your house, you are just like, oh my God, they are coming again. You know, they just don't look forward to them. But then you have that uncle and aunt, you're asking them, when are you coming back? And then you have, that's, those are the ones that are around. But then you have the uncles and the aunts that are, you're anticipating when they are coming from the abroad. <laughs> because you know something good will show up. Uh, there's a very special uncle of mine. He's been in the States for, I don't know, 30-something years, but he also is a pastor and he's visiting us um, for the first time. Incidentally, when he was one of the first people that Tosi and I shared this vision with about the church 2015, and he and his wife were uh, also um, the, first, the first, part of the first people that actually donated towards our, our church. And then uh, one, more, one last thing. If... I don't, know, I don't know how I smell. I don't know how I smell. But if you've ever smelled uh, polo, polo, the green polo, if you've ever smelled it on me, it's because that uncle of mine always used polo green. So I'd love for all of us to please appreciate Pastor Emmanuel Bada that's visiting us from New Jersey. He's the pastor of Rock of Ages Fellowship in New Jersey. You're welcome, sir. Thank you for showing up. All right. Okay, so let's get into um, our, our, our sermon. I, we have been doing a series um, called The Sent Ones. Yes, The Sent Ones is what it's called. Yes, I know, I know, I know. But I'm still sent. I just, it just, you know, it's, these things happen. So The Sent Ones. Uh, but, you know, before I get into, and this is the penultimate sermon, but before I get into that, I do want to uh, address something that I notice has been going on in society in Nigeria. Now, there are a lot of serious things, but I don't think there's anything more serious than this. I think that there has been a systematic um, attempt to take one of our ethnic groups and to shame them since probably about 2016, but it reached a peak in 2017. There was, uh, for like ladies that are here now, we know that the days are evil. Days are evil, and we must always be at alert, right? But that doesn't excuse the fact that you identify certain men and you call them Yoruba demons. Why? 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 In 2017, like Yoruba, I'm like, Yoruba demon, what? I won't lie to you, I thought a Yoruba demon was a particular demon. So when people are talking about it, like, oh, how do we pray against them? Because I know how to pray against Igbo demons, I know how to pray against Hausa demons. So I was like, all right, how do we start this Yoruba demon thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So later I now found out, when they now told me, I even saw one article. The article says, five ways you can spot a Yoruba demon. Five ways you know a Yoruba demon has been with you. First one is that, first one is that, first, can I, can I speak please? First one is that they said he has a slick tongue. Second one is that uh, 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 he dresses nicely. Third one is that he, he, he never, he, he responds to his messages very late. Fourth, uh, okay, all right. Fourth one, fourth one is that he always has, has beautiful ladies around him. And then the fifth one is that he never picks up his phone. 
But the one that annoyed me the most was they now said, but there is a bonus one. And that the bonus one is that usually his name is Femi. Uh, no, let's not. If you are watching me talk for the first time, uh, hi, my name is Femi. Uh, but I am not a demon. I can assure you. So this, this has now turned people against the Yoruba race. And I felt as a son of the soil that I need to, I need to address this thing. Because if they are representing us as demons, then, no, this is serious. The Omo Dudu is here. Don't worry, I got you. I got this. So in other words, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give a counter-offensive, right? I'm going to put the Yoruba, face, the Yoruba race's best face forward so that you understand what we have brought to you people. So how do you know? Here are four signs that you have been with somebody that is from Ijebode. You know, I said the best face of the Yoruba race. I had the best. Uh, don't come on. No offense. All you Ekiti people, all you Egba people, all the, you are okay. You are doing fine. But we all know. Ijebo. So, the very first one, how do you know that? Because the thing about all Ijebo people is they are just, they can't help it. We are, they are, not we, are, sorry. They are great. They are just great. Great at everything. First one, they are great business people. Great business people. Where, where's my great, Where's my Who knows who that is? That's the late uh, Adiola Odutola. You know, great man. In fact, when the, when the queen, go go rest her, so. When the queen came to, to uh, Nigeria in the 50s, she spent a night in his house. Where? In Ijebu Ode. Wow. Oh, God. <laughs> second. Second one. Second one about them is... Um, they are great, we are great, oh, sorry, sorry, they, they are great, they are great party hosts. They know how to throw a party. Have you ever been to a party for a job? You know, you know. Ikokore is there, never finishes. The meat never finishes, never. The, eh? Gary Jebu, is that bad? As what we call white gold. What are you talking about? Third one, third one. It's the way that people are great global champions. <laughs> eh? You didn't know. In case you don't know, some of you, that's Toby Amuso. Toby Amuso. She's the uh, world record holder. World, not, uh, not local. All these Madakeke people, they, they'll be holding record. World record holder in the 110 meters hurdles from Ijebode to the world. <laughs> but the best thing about Ijebode people, the greatest thing that they are, you know what they are? They are great pastors. <laughs> we, we, that, that, you know, I just heard something. That demonic spirit has gone. <laughs> now, the point of all this is this. Truly, here's how, what we are getting at. People will identify you as a specific kind of person when you possess certain qualities that characterize that person. People will identify you as a specific kind of person when you possess and demonstrate the characteristics that identify with that person. 
We've been saying in this series that we are the sent ones. We are what? The sent ones. Those sent by God. Question. How will those people that we are sent to, how will they know that truly a sent one has been among them? In other words, after we have been sent, then what? You see, Ezekiel was one of those kinds of people. And God made it clear to him what was required. On his prophetic commission in verses 4 to 5, listen to what God says. He says, the people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Lord, sovereign Lord says. And whether they fail to listen or they listen for their rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. They will know that a prophet has been among them. Notice, it wasn't whether the people would listen or not. It wasn't about the result. It was about whether he said what God had told him to say. Say to these people. And if you demonstrate that quality, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Guys, listen. God has made his plan of salvation absolutely clear in the gospel. But the question is this, and I want us to answer this question as we go through this sermon. We who know the gospel, will we be the gospel prophets that God has called us to be? When you spend your time with people over a period of time, will they be able to say, surely a prophet has been among us? My prayer today is this, as we encounter this sermon, that your testimony living this place will be that God himself will say, surely I sent a prophet to those people, and the people in turn will say, surely because of the way you have demonstrated this quality, a prophet had been among us. And so let us pray. Father Lord, we ask for your presence now. Father Lord, we ask, oh God, for the demonstration of your power. Father, we ask, O oh God, for the demonstration of your wisdom, that your power and your wisdom will not only speak to us and our understanding, but it will change us. Father, I pray for those who are here, for your people, O oh God, who are here, that as we hear these words, O oh God, we will not just take these words, O oh God, for our own selves, but we will see that you have anointed us to be your prophet, O oh God, in these days. Open our mouths, O oh God. Open our mouths so that we will speak your word. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So we titled the sermon, After You've Been Sent by God. Because after we've been sent by God, what is it that we need to know to truly show people that a prophet has been among them. Well, there are three things you have to remember. You have to remember what you are sent with. You have to remember who you are sent to and remember who you are sent from. Remember what you are sent with, who you are sent to, and who you've been sent from. Let's enter the sermon now. So the first point, Remember who, what you are sent with. Now, we didn't read it, but Ezekiel has had a, um, he's had a vision. We'll get back to that in chapter 1. And that vision had, was awesome, brought him to his knees. So when we start in verse 1 of chapter 2, where he says, get up from your feet, it was because the vision had brought him to his knees. And 
in that uh, verses 1, 2, and 3, as we see, he was eventually sent. Verse 2, as he spoke, the Spirit came and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites. But what was he sending him with? Because you can't just say, I'm sending you to this place. Has somebody ever said, hey, come, go and meet, let's say I say, Chidima, please, go and meet um, uh, Bola. What would Chidima say? Uh, what for? Are you sending me with, you know, a packet for him? Are you sending me with something to do for him? Or are you sending me with something to say to him? And in verse 7, it makes it clear what he was sent with. He says, you must speak my words to them. I am sending you to the children of Israel. You must speak my words to them. Notice, he didn't say, I am sending you with a certain kind of behavior, even though that is important. He didn't say, I am sending you as someone who is kind, someone who is generous, someone who is prayerful. All of those things are true. In fact, those who take the word of God and are transformed by the word of God truly will be kind, truly will be generous, truly will be prayerful. All right? But for them to know that a prophet has been among them, he says what? Take my words and speak my words to them. In fact, later he then says in verses 4 to 5, he says, these words that I'm going to give to you, I want you to what? Uh, sorry, verses 8, I want you to what? Eat them, verse 8. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like those rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. What is it that he's going to give him? A scroll. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written, or, uh, were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. God wants us to be so familiar with the gospel that it feels like we've ingested it. You see, there's a way you can just look at the gospel. There's a way you can admire the gospel. It's almost like you can Put it, you know, sometimes, um, you know, a lot of people sometimes we buy books and we use books as decoration. And hand up. All those books in your library, how many of them have you read? But he's saying here, it's not just that you take the gospel and be like, ooh, wonderful. Oh, do you know I go to a gospel center church? What is the gospel? Why does that matter? I go to a gospel center. What church do you go to? You go to Baptist. I go to gospel center. <laughs> it's not a trendy thing. He's saying, here is the gospel. I want you to what? Eat it. In other words, if we are going to be effective gospel prophets, the first thing is that we have to be so familiar with the gospel that it's as though we have eaten it. Am I speaking to somebody? Now, when we eat it, what is the nature of that gospel that we've eaten? Turn to your neighbor and say, the gospel is bittersweet. Notice he says that he tasted it as sweet as honey. But on the scroll was written laments, mournings, and woes. There's a similar passage in the book of Revelation, our favorite book of the Bible, right? In Revelation chapter uh, uh, 10, 
verses 7 to 11, John has been this magnificent angel and that he's putting his hand on, on one hand on the earth and one hand or one leg in the, on the earth and another leg on, on the sea. And just after that angel, because he's about to do something, there was another angel there. So John went and now spoke to the angel. Said, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. What does this remind you of? Exactly. I took the little scroll from the angel's hands and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. You see, the bitterness of life is often what sets it up for its sweetness. Many times we agonize about the bitterness of life. And many times we don't understand that the bitterness has meaning when you get the sweetness after. Victory often means more when you have tasted a lot of defeats. Just ask our president. Genuine love. Genuine love. Uh, no, that's just a factual statement. It's not, please, it's nothing political. I'm not saying, just a factual statement, right? Genuine love. Genuine love. Some of us will know this. Genuine love tastes better when you suffered heartbreak. And again, another one that many of us, I know all of us will know here, is that good health feels a whole lot better when you have been very sick. Yes. Speaking about health, the funny thing how I've spoken to people, I've been with people that have taken chemo um, medication, chemo, chemotherapy. It often causes bitter reactions in the body. They know that, but why are they taking it? They are taking that bitter reaction in their body. Why? Because they are anticipating the sweetness of life without cancer. Are you guys understanding? You see, the gospel diagnoses the sinfulness of our lives. It is bitter. And it even tells us about a dire life outside of God for all eternity. These things are bitter. Nobody wants to hear it. How many of us like being called out on our sin? We don't. That's why many times we resist it. We defend. We reject it. Who likes being told that if they continue the way they are going, that they are going to hell? Nobody likes it. It is bitter. That's why people deny. People will minimize their sin. People will hide it. They hide from the truth because it is bitter. Oh God, if they only knew that the bitterness of the gospel only sets us up for the sweetness of the gospel. That's why if you go back to Revelation 10 verse 7, notice what it says. It says, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished. The mystery of God. In fact, it was that mystery of God, because of that mystery of God in verse 11, it then says, you should now, you will not, then I was told, you must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. He was called to prophesy. Because the, in the day of the sounding of the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be accomplished. What is the mystery of God? Wherever you see the mystery of God or mystery of the gospel in the Bible, it is basically God's salvation plan, once concealed, but now revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when people are hiding from the truth of the gospel, what they are doing or the bitterness of the gospel, they are not seeing the sweetness 
of the gospel. What is going to happen? The mystery of God will be accomplished. Now I want you to go to verse 11. Because after I said you, at chapter 11, after I said you will prophesy here, he speaks about these two witnesses. I've spoken about it before. Two witnesses at the church. The church, what the, uh, the church in the time before Christ, uh, the time between when Christ returned and Christ co is coming back. Following? So he says, the two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's the symbolic period between when Christ went and is returning, okay? And verse 7 now says, now when they have finished their testimony, so they prophesy, when they finish their testimony, after that, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That's why in Matthew 24, Jesus said, you will hear of wars, rumors of wars, and all of these things, but the end has not yet come. But this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all nations, for a witness, and then the end will Come. It is the prophesying of the gospel as we keep speaking about it, as we keep preaching. That is what ushers in the final world that we are looking forward to. Amen? So when we are talking about the bitterness of the gospel, yes, lament, woes, all of these things, it only sets us up for the sweetness. And God says this, guys. If you take the bitter, sweet gospel to the people he sent you to, they will know that a prophet has been among them. May that be your testimony. Amen. But it also has personal implications. Personal and immediate implications. I've spoken about the cosmic implication. But it has personal implications. You know, many times we look around um, us and we see people and we're like, man, I wish this person was better. I wish this person could go for one class. I wish I could tell this person to do this. You know, we often speak about behavior modification. That is helping people change their behaviors. And so why can't we just do that? Just ask people to be good. And just look out for behavior modification. Now, let me say this straight up. Many of the things that we see in behavior modification are not bad. They have a lot of advantages. But I can tell you straight up, it is useless in dealing with our chronic spiritual condition. Turn to your neighbor and say, an inaccurate diagnosis leads to an insufficient cure. What do I mean by that? Let's go back to Ezekiel. You see, if you read chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, it says, In the 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. Verse 2, on the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of exile of King Jehoiachin. And in verse 3, it then tells us that it was his 30th year. Ezekiel was 30. So we can trace when Ezekiel was born and who was the king. When Ezekiel was born, it was in the time of King Josiah. Josiah was a king that got to the throne, I think, was it six or eight years old? I think it was at eight years old. And at some point, because his father was bad, but his father only ruled two years, his grandfather was probably the longest serving king in Judah, Manasseh. He ruled for about 55 years, and he was probably the worst king they ever had in terms of his sin. So the time in which Josiah went to the throne, it was an awful, sinful time. And at some point, Josiah was telling them to repair certain things in the temple, bring some money from the temple, and then they found the book of the law. Imagine God's people, God's people had not been using God's law for how many years? And so when he read it, he now realized, man, look at the trouble we're in. So that in eventually 
ushered in what we call Josiah's reforms. So Josiah started reforming the nation according to the law. Five years into that was when Ezekiel was born. Are we following? And so Ezekiel was born at a time of national reformation. Where they were changing things, Josiah was trying to reorder the whole nation. And chief among all the things that Josiah did was, you know what? He was destroying the worship of idolatry in Israel. He was destroying high places. He was destroying the worship of vows, all the, uh, the, the idols in the land. And that was a great time. They instituted the Passover again, all of those different things. But you know what? Eventually, Josiah died. And after Josiah died, the people went back to the idolatry. The kings after that were terrible. They eventually fell into exile. Josiah had many wonderful things that he did, but he did not stop the people from going to exile. Do you know why? Because even though he destroyed the idols that were outside, they had a deeper problem. Look at what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 14 verse 3. He found out what the, 14 verse 3, he found out what the problem was. Son of man, these men have done what? Set up idols. Where? Outside? In their hearts. Look at 11 verse 21. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what? They have done, declares the Lord. Do you see the problem? They still entered into exile because they didn't have the lasting changes that were needed. The idols were in their hearts. They needed to destroy the idols in their heart as well as the idols in, high, in the high world places. And so this is what Ezekiel's ministry eventually started to become about. That it was not just the external changes that mattered, but that the chronic condition of the human being, well, well, of the Israelites, but of all human beings is in the heart. And what we need for our hearts is not just heart resuscitation. Literally, we need a heart transplant. So listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 36. Many of us know this. 36 verse 25. When God was saying, this is the real solution the house of Israel needs. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse, I will cleanse from you all your impurities from all your, I will cleanse from you all, oops. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your, your heart of stone and give you what? A heart of flesh. Turn to your neighbor and say, an inaccurate diagnosis leads to an insufficient cure. So I want to quickly go very deeply practical with you guys. How can we be effective evangelists? And I want to illustrate this with Paul. Paul showed us in a way that he was not alienated from the culture and he wasn't assimilated. He wasn't alienated and he wasn't what? Assimilated. He understood that he, all, he had to understand the context to be able to bring the content. There are two examples I want to show us. Right? In Acts chapter 13, verses 13, 13 to... Uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 13 to 44. And then I would now do um, Acts chapter 17, 16, 34. There are two different contexts. Right? One is to the Jews and one is to Gentiles. Now remember that Paul was, on the one hand, he was not just a Jew. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Jewish scholar of the Pharisees, learned under Gamaliel. But at the same time, he's Saul of Tarsus. 
That is, he was in the, um, the third most important city in the Greco-Roman world when you talk, talk about Greek literature. Only after Athens and Alexandria. Tarsus was next. So Paul was a Jewish scholar and he was also a Greek scholar. And he used this to huge effect. Amen. And what you'll see here is a five-step process. Can I show you? If you want to be an effective evangelist, follow this five-step process that Paul shows us. Where are they? All right, first one, go to the context. Go to the context. Don't allow them to come and meet you. Right? Second thing is identify and understand their sin problem. Identify and understand their sin problem. Third is build bridges to engage with them. Build bridges to engage with them. Fourth is present a critique of their sin problem in a way they understand. Present a critique of their sin problem in a way they understand. And then five is present the gospel as the solution to that, that sin problem. Are you following me? Now let's look at it. Uh, this Acts chapter 13, uh, we do Acts chapter 13 from uh, Acts chapter 14. Is it 14? No, Acts chapter me. Acts 13, 14 to 43. We're not reading all of it, so we've caught some of it, all right? So from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they entered where? The synagogue. He went to the synagogue, where he can find them, and sat down. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. That's the context. The Israelites, but also Gentiles who had become Jude, um, uh, converts to Judaism. He said, listen to me. The God of our people, Israel, chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. Keep going. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Continue. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Stop. Go back. Do we see what happened there? First one, he went to the synagogue. He went, all right? That's where he's going to meet these Jewish people. Second thing, what did we say? Identify and understand their sin problem. What did Paul identify and understand? He said, these are the people who follow the law of Moses. But these people, their sin still remained on them. What was their problem? Their problem was that they, used, they misused the law of Moses. Rather than using the law of Moses to regulate their established relationship with God, they thought it was what they can use to establish a relationship with God. I'll say that again. They thought... By doing the laws or the commandments in the law of Moses, this is how they establish a right relationship with God. Rather, it was given to regulate the relationship with God. If you do the works of the law, you will die. James says if you try and do, if you break just one commandment, what has happened? You are already condemned. So he understood that they will not be able to be forgiven fully of their sins if they continue to obey the law. That was their sin problem. What was the third thing? Notice what Paul did. These people are who? Jews and, they are gent and Gentiles that fear the Lord. So how, what bridge did he build with them? Go back to verse 16. Verse 16. He said, so Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israel, Gentiles that worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors, our ancestors, and made the people prosper their stay in Egypt. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Huh? Say it, Exodus, right? Where did he get the Exodus from? The from the Torah. Who reads the Torah? Jews. The Jews. 
So what did he do? He established and built a bridge to them on a, a common authority that they can accept. Are you understanding? They accepted the law. And so he used the law to appeal to them something they understood. So he built a bridge so that he could engage with them. Then the fourth thing was he presented a critique of their problem. He said, this justification, you were never able to receive it, what, under, obtain it under the law of Moses. There must be another way. And then in verse 32, he presented the gospel to them. He said, we tell you the good news. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising what? Jesus. If he doesn't have Jesus, it's not the gospel. Do you see that five step? Now, let me show you another one. Now, Paul is no longer among Jews. He is now going to the, the center of, Greco, of, of Greek education, where? Athens. In Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Keep going. So he reasoned in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are very ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Stop. Now, notice Paul, this time, although he went to the synagogue in Athens first, but later he went to where? The marketplace, and he was also at the Areopagus, where they also had a lot of debate. Notice the people he met. He met the normal people there, but he also met the philosophers, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. So Paul what? Went there. Second thing, he identified their problem. He said when Paul was in Athens, he identified that the city was full. He was distressed that the city was full of what? Idols. Notice when he was with the Jews, it wasn't about explicit idols because they know that idols got them into exile. Are you following? So the problem, the, there was a common sin problem, but it was expressed differently. Third, Paul built a bridge to them. Notice what Paul said. Paul said, so the scripture says that anyone who worships, is that what Paul said? Go back to verse 20, 21, listen, uh, 21, 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Rebecca, people of that side said that you know, in every way you are very religious. He didn't just condemn them. He said, you people are very religious. And by that, he wasn't saying a bad thing. He was saying, I can see that you have a zeal for worship. Verse 23, for as I walked around, look carefully at your object of worship. I even found an altar of this inscription to an unknown God. Go to verse 28. Because he said they are ignorant of that God. He now said, for in him we live and move and have our being. How many of us have quoted that in your prayers? How many of you have quoted that in your prayers? Have you never said that? You know that is not from the Bible. That is, that is a, 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 a Christian philosopher called Epimenides. And then as some of your own poets have said, this one is a Christian philosopher, right? This one is called Aratus. No, sorry, this is a Sicilian philosopher called Aratus. We are his offspring. 
as some of your own poets have said. He used their own poets to say, you people are ignorant. What was the problem he identified? Go back to that verse 22. He says that you are, uh, sorry, he says, so you are ignorant. You, you yourself said to an unknown God, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Are you guys seeing what he's doing? He did not quote scripture here. Because they don't have a common agreement on the authority of scripture. But he still presented scriptural truth to them. Because at the end of the day, he said that Paul was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul did not say, because these people don't talk about, uh, they don't know about this thing. He didn't say that means we won't talk about hell. He said he has appointed a day in which God will what? judge the world by the man he has ordained. He's saying God will judge this ignorance. He has overlooked this ignorance. But I bring you good news. Jesus has risen from the dead. Am I speaking to somebody here? You can be effective witnesses of the gospel. Understand, go to the people, understand their problem, build bridges, present the critique of the problem in a way they can understand and present Jesus Christ as the solution to that problem. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now, what is the result? The result in Acts chapter 13 is that some people believed and followed, some others did not. But in Acts chapter 17, in verse 4, um, uh, give me the end. He says, some of the people, well, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you on this subject again. Some people became followers of Paul and believed. Next, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were the Anisians, a member of the... Keep going. No, no, where, where's one that says that some became followers, some were open? Maybe I didn't see that. Yeah, some, okay, some, some people believed, some people didn't believe, and some said, we want to hear you again on this matter. So some believed, some rejected it, and some said, we will be open to hear again. The issue is not the result. The issue is whether you say what God has called you to say. You leave the results to, people, to God. None of us can ever change someone's heart. That is the only thing God can do. But all of us can preach the gospel. Amen. Amen. I pray that God will open our mouths to preach the gospel. Amen. Paul did the same thing to different people in a different way. And even though the results were mixed, they knew that a prophet had been among them. Let me pray for you. May God give you spiritual insight to understand your context, to build bridges that enables you to preach the gospel. I pray that God will say that concerning you, I sent a prophet to those people and those people will eventually say, a prophet has been among us. Father, give your children light. Give them light, oh God, in their, uh, in their understanding. Father, give your children boldness and courage and let their mouths be loosened to speak your gospel. Raise gospel prophets among those who are here and are watching in the name of Jesus. Finally, Final point, very quickly. Remember who you are sent from. Because someone here is saying, I get what you are saying, and I can see the flow and logical flow to all of that. I get it. But let me be honest with you. Here's my big problem I am afraid. I am afraid. I'm afraid of being rejected by my friends. I'm afraid of being labeled judgmental. 
I'm afraid of not being persuasive enough. I'm afraid of all of these things. I wonder where Paul got his boldness from because I don't have it. I am afraid. Can I say that's very understandable if you're afraid. And in some ways, I want to commend you if you have come to that point. Say, here's the big problem, I'm afraid. You know why? You are in a better place than a lot of people who are afraid but are not willing to be honest. And so we, those kind of people will be saying things like, it's just that I'm very busy. Or it wasn't the best time. Every time has never been the best time. Agree. Sometimes are not the best time, but every time not the best time. Until you hear that that person has passed away and you had the words of life for that person. Some of us will say, I'm just, I'm still building the relationship. Others will say, I let my actions do the talking. Others will say, you know what? After listening to this sermon, I'm not sent to them. And all of these are just excuses to mask the fact that we are afraid. We are afraid. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't be afraid. I would like to you. I too, sometimes I am. I have been. I remember doing my PhD. You know, you had people from all around the world. Very, very smart people. And we're all talking engineering stuff. We're talking, you know, high-level things. And you're like, ah, but you also, <laughs> you go to, how do you talk to a Chinese atheist? How do you talk to a Turkish Muslim? How do you talk to a Syrian Muslim? All of these things. And I remember he haunted me for years. Until one day God dealt with my fear. And I approached a particular Muslim and we started organizing debates. And we invited everyone. And there was an Iranian Muslim there. There was a Russian there. They were, Come and hear. I don't know if any of them got converted. But I'm saying God can't deal with that fear. You see, Ezekiel himself was afraid. You say, where did Paul get the boldness from? He got the boldness from the same place that Ezekiel got that boldness. Ezekiel was afraid. How do we know was afraid? Because three times in verse 6, God said these three, uh, these four words to him. Do you know that these phrases, this phrase, this phrase I'm going to tell you, this exhortation is the most repeated exhortation in all of scripture. You know what God says? Son of man, do not what? Be afraid of them. He then says it again. Do not be what? Afraid. Though the barrels and thrones are all around you and you live among scorpions. Then he says it one more time. Do not be what? Afraid. God is saying to somebody here, do not be what? Afraid. Why? The only credible way he can say that is if there was somebody else that had to be feared more. If the person that was saying it had to be feared more. I'll give you one example. Anytime I was growing up, the time I was growing up, and anytime I was I'd enter trouble, you know when you've entered trouble, but the result of the trouble has not yet come. So I've done something that I know that when my parents come back, it don't be. That, in fact, that one is agonizing because the, the weight in itself is, is problematic. And sometimes I will have done something bad and I know my parents, are, my dad is coming and one more, I'm going to hear it. Then one of the uncles, right, or aunties, not this uncle here because he is great. I'm saying the ones that are not very good. They will not come in and say, do you know what they will tell me? They will say, don't be afraid. <laughs> it had no effect on me. <laughs> do you know why? Do you know why it had no effect on me? The people that were telling me don't be afraid and the person they were telling me not to be afraid from, I feared my dad more than I feared them. But if it was the converse, 
if I got into trouble with one of them, I done something bad for one of my uncles or aunties, and my dad came and said, Femi, don't be afraid. Guess what? Boldness will fill my heart. Because I know that if they mess up, my dad can send them away. There was a greater fear of my dad, and that stopped me from being afraid for them. Somebody is not hearing what I'm saying. Listen, God could tell Ezekiel, do not be afraid. Not because the children of Israel were not scary, but God himself was the one that they should fear. You see, Ezekiel had a vision in chapter 1. That was the setup for this. And in that vision in chapter 1, it was a scary vision. He saw these magnificent cherubims, right? These creatures that had four faces on their head. One here, one here, one here, one here. They had about six wings. They were flying. They were terrible creatures. And he saw it and it was so magnificent. And God is saying, listen, the children of Israel can be scary to you, Ezekiel. But in comparison to these cherubims, they do not stand anything. But the most magnificent thing about that vision, do you know what it was? After I described the cherubims for such a long time, by the time you get to chapter verse 26 of chapter 1, you know what it then shows? It's, first of all, it describes these cherubims, all the wings, the wheels and everything. But then it says, look, in verse 26, it says, above the vault, over their heads. <laughs> I love this. Listen, above the vault, over their heads, over the heads of the cherubims. So think about the cherubims. Then there is a vault above them. Over their head was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of God speaking. Now, there's something you did not catch there. You didn't catch it. Do you see where the angels were? The angels were magnificent, they were glorious. At the top of the angels, there was a vault. And at that vault, there was the bottom of the throne of God. The angels can be magnificent, but the peak of the angels is the bottom of the starting place of the glory of God. That is the one that says to you, do not be afraid. If the children of Israel may be scary, but there is a God that follows us. And he is the one that we should fear. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, do not fear the ones that can destroy the body, but fear the one that can destroy the body and the soul. And that is the one that is telling you, do not be afraid. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be what? Afraid. Oh, give it to me. So don't let your heart be troubled. Hold your head up. I don't feel evil. Peace your eyes on this walk. God has brought Courage rising up in their heart. Can you stand up and sing with us? Let that be a chant of courage.
Don't let your heart be troubled. So don't, don't let your heart be troubled. Come on, hey. There's still one more thing though, that makes God more fearful than Ezekiel's vision. That vision was magnificent. God is high on his throne. He should be feared because of that. But there is one thing that makes God even more fearful. In Psalm 130 verse 4, listen to what he said. He says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be what? Feared. What? If he gives forgiveness, Why? Is it that we should fear him? Listen, because only the one who can condemn you eternally is the one that can forgive you eternally. Satan cannot condemn you eternally. And therefore, Satan does not have the forgiveness in him. It is because God is the one who can condemn us eternally. He is the only one that can forgive us eternally. I hope you are hearing this. If God has forgiven, you have no reason to fear. The glorious, the best manifestation of the glory of God was not on the throne of God. It was on the throne of the cross of Jesus Christ. For that is where your forgiveness was met. Do not be afraid. Turn to your neighbor and say, do not be afraid. How does this all connect to God sending us? I want to take you to a very brief scene. Jesus is about to call his apostles. They, he goes to the Sea of Galilee. They have toiled all day and they couldn't catch any fish. So eventually Jesus says, put your neck back in. And they're like, can anything come out? We have been toiling all day, but we will do it because of you. And so when they let their nets down, when they are done, so they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. When Peter saw this, he did something that will remind you of somebody. Listen to what Peter did. When Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. What does that remind you of? What does that remind you of? Ezekiel falling down at the knees because he saw the vision of God. Peter said, depart from me, I'm a very sinful man. Then Jesus said to Simon, Jesus said, let's say it all together. What did Jesus say to him? Be afraid. Not just because I have forgiven you. I have forgiven you. Don't be afraid. And because of that, from now on, you will fish for people. You will fish for people in the name of Jesus Christ. I cast down every fear that has held you bound in the name of Jesus. May it be dissolved in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. For everyone whose mouth has been shut because of the spirit of fear, he has given you a spirit of a sound mind. Lord, release a spirit of a sound mind in your people's hearts today in the name of Jesus. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For listening to the gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit 
www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.